Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am always glad to have this time with you. I hope you've had a good day. Been interesting day so far. We had a wonderful experience. The Faith Radio team, we went and did uh, a food packing activity at Feed My Starving Children. And I think we all had a lot of fun, and we all wore hairnets. So... There you go. <laughs> I feel like there's a joke in there somewhere no, for you. there's plenty of jokes, but I'm not going there. <laughs> okay, But that good. was fun. It was fun. Yeah. It's a good organization, and they help do a lot of good for a lot of hungry kids around the world. Weren't you surprised at how um, competitive it got? I'm like, yes, more boxes, more uh, boxes. I didn't see it that way. You didn't? No. Oh, I got I, all I, wrapped up in nah, it. No, see, I wasn't competing. Competing but. for more kids to be fed, though. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was, was good. Fun. Yeah. But we're going to talk today to Clay Craby. He is the founder of Reasonable Theology, um, talking about sound doctrine in plain language. And you can learn more about him and uh, Reasonable Theology at reasonabletheology.org. That's his website. Always glad to have Clay on. It's been a while since we chatted. Clay, welcome back. Hey, it's always fun to be on with you. I appreciate that. Is your mom listening today? Oh, I'm guessing so. Oh, good. That makes me happy. <laughs> you know, we... Uh, I started about a couple months ago where I wanted to do um, a series called New Friend, Same Seven Questions, because what I really want to do is help people strengthen their evangelistic and apologetics muscle. So I think if you hear these questions asked and these answers uh, given by a number of different people, I think it just strengthens your that apologetics muscle. So that is the target goal. Are you ready to go? I am ready. Okay. Here's question number one, Clay Craby. Is man separated from God? Yeah, we are. The The plain truth of Scripture is that we are separated from God, and we're separated from God because of sin. And that's, you know, really any breaking of God's law, any failure to uphold what God has commanded, that is sin. And Scripture is clear that we've all sinned, we've all fall short of the glory of God, and as a result, we're separated from Him. God is perfectly holy. He cannot be in relationship with anything sinful because he's holy by his very nature. And because we're all sinful, therefore, uh, we're all separated from him. We inherit guilt from Adam in the fall. We have plenty of our own sin, and therefore we are all separated from God. That is the the, the human condition universally. Mm-hmm. But when you hear someone say, oh, Clay, I'm a spiritual person, and I don't believe what you believe, but I'm I'm not separated from God. What would you say? You know, A.W. Tozer had a quote that an honest man with a pencil and a notebook can find out what's wrong with him pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, so I, I mm-hmm. get that sentiment. I think that is a common reaction when someone is confronted uh, through a reading of Scripture, perhaps they hear a sermon, maybe they're in an evangelistic conversation— and the initial reaction might be is, well, I mean, that's for bad people. Uh, you know, sin is and hell, that's reserved for Genghis Khan and Hitler and, you know, the bully that t- 
teased me in high school. Like they don't consider themselves to be in that group, but the reality is when you look at Scripture, uh, when you have an honest evaluation of our our actions, our thoughts, our failures to act when we know we ought to, we all have sin. It's very clear both from a perspective of looking at what Scripture teaches us and then just an honest assessment of ourselves and the world around us. We're, we're a sinful people in the midst of a sinful people, and this is universally a problem for all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, you sound like one of those self-righteous Christians, and I, I don't think I'm separated from God. Yeah, I think the answer to that is uh, there. there is no such thing as a, a self-righteous Christian, though that might be at leveled against Christians, is the only righteousness we have available to us is Christ's righteousness. And so I think that is the primary goal, is pointing people to that reality of this is not a situation where the Christian is saying, look at me, I've figured it out, look how good I am, I've earned God's love. It is, no, uh, I I had nothing to offer. I had no means of securing my forgiveness or salvation, but Christ provided that for me. And that's that's really the nature of the gospel. That's the goal of these interactions you have with others. But yeah, that's that's something that's often going to be said against the the Christian, mm-hmm. but it's it's not a fair understanding of what even a Christian is. Mm. Well, I'll figure it out when I get to heaven and, and uh, I'll tell God that he didn't give me enough evidence and we'll sort it out then, even though I don't believe what you believe. Sure. And, and scripture speaks to that as well, quite plainly in, in saying that, you know, the, the created order is enough for everyone to be without excuse that they have been given enough evidence to know two things. One, that there is a God and two, you are not him. And, and <laughs> mm-hmm. so... We all stand without excuse, and then on top of that, we have God's special revelation, that is Scripture, uh, to tell us everything that we need to know to have a right understanding of who we are, who He is, what our problem is, that is sin, and, and how we can overcome that, not through anything on our part, but through Christ and what He did for us. All right. Solid answers, Clay Cravey. Let's move on to the next question. What is the fate of the lost? So this is the the obvious next question that comes up. If we have determined, as we just did, that essentially the world is is condemned. If you are uh, born into this world, you are born in sin and you commit sin, so you're separated from God, what then happens? What is the fate of those whom are separated from God? Well, the issue is that to be separated from God due to sin is essentially to be an enemy of God. R.C. Sproul said it well when he said that all of us have committed cosmic treason against God, and that must be punished. The punishment for that is left for us to endure. That takes place in hell. Matthew 25, 46 tells us that while the the righteous go into eternal life, the unjust go away to eternal punishment. And that takes place in a very real place. This is not a metaphor. This is not an idea. You're not annihilated and just kind of cease to exist. It's a real place. Uh, Scripture describes it as being marked by torment and fire and and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all these terrible things, and that place is hell. And what people need to understand is is God is not unjust for punishing sin and punishing sinners. In fact, it would be unjust for him to ignore sin. We might be pleased with that, but if you think of a judge— 
uh, and and you take your car and you run over some fire hydrants and you sideswipe a school bus and and you you know litter while you're doing it and all these things. If the judge just says, "Oh, don't worry about it," you might be happy that you're not getting the punishment you deserve, but you can't say that it's just. Well, God cannot be unjust. Sin must be punished, and that is the great predicament that we all find ourselves in. Is is that we all have to face that judgment, that just wrath against sin that God has. Mm. But when you talk about the lost, I mean, okay, Clay, I've got this friend, and he's a surgeon, and he saves children. And you telling me he's going to he's going to hell? And that's a challenge a lot of people have: is they look uh, outwardly at someone who who does great things. And, and I do not think it's a valid argument that some people fall into of saying that the lost, that an unbeliever cannot do something that um, is by man's standards to be uh, a very good deed, to be a very good person by our standards. What we have to get people to understand is God looks at the heart. And the reality is all of us have done wrong. All of us have sinned. That relationship is severed. It is not weighed on a scale, and once you get to a certain amount of sin, then you're in trouble. No, you have sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God, and your relationship to him is severed. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Mm. Scripture makes clear that you, you, you personally cannot do anything about it. You can't pray your way out of it. You can't, and just in terms of like the the effectiveness of your own eloquent prayers, you can't work your way out of it. You can't buy your way out. There's nothing that you can do. So being a good person, that's great. But if you are separated from God, you are in a heap of trouble. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me ask you the next question. So is there a, a point where a person is what you call saved? And is that, how does that happen? And what does someone have to do to get to this place of being saved? Sure. And theologians write a lot about this question. Uh, Throughout the ages, this question gets dealt with a lot. One of the phrases you might come across when studying something like this is the ordo salutis, which is just fancy Latin talk for the order of salvation. And, and we see, informed by passages like Romans 8, 29 to 30, that talks about, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And it says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The, the term we want to zoom in on there is justified, justification. This is really the point of what we would call salvation, of, of being saved, of like in John 3, when he's talking to uh, Nicodemus at night, when he talks about being born again, this is the point that salvation is actually applied to us. And that's when we're forgiven all our sin. That's when we're accepted as righteous in God's sight, not based on anything we have done, but based on the righteousness of Christ. That's the point of salvation. I like it. Clay Cravey is my guest. You can learn more about Cray at reasonabletheology.org. It's .org, isn't it, Clay? It is .org, yes. Good deal. And we're going to continue our series called New Friend, Same Seven Questions, because I want you to strengthen your apologetics and evangelism muscle. These are the kinds of questions you get often in discussion, and I want you to feel equipped and ready to go. We'll be right back with more of Clay in just a minute.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. If you just joined me, welcome. I hope you've had a good day. Clay Craby is my guest. He's at reasonabletheology.org, reasonabletheology.org. I'm doing my new friends, same seven questions, because I think it's a good exercise to not only uh, strengthen our evangelism and apologetics muscle, it also gives my guests a good chance to do a little refresher course on their own thinking. So I love that. And Clay, you're doing a great job. You've, I, think, I think you got these questions in advance, didn't you? I, I did. Hopefully, I've gotten them right so far. Oh, no, no, you're, you're doing great. Um, <laughs> but you sound so well-prepared, which is uh, very nice. All right, let's uh, move on to the next one. You know, I, I hear people saying that I need to get saved. I keep hearing that come up in conversation. There. Are you saved? Okay, uh, what, what am I being saved to? Yeah, so when we think about, you know, what are we being saved to, you have to go back to that initial problem is, is we've got a holy creator God and we have sinned against him, so we're we're separated from him because of the debt of our sin that can never be repaid on us, that can only be repaid on Christ paying that on our behalf. That's what he accomplished for us on the cross. And when we come to faith in Christ, there's important things that, that we have and receive right now. And so we've, we've got a new status. We're no longer guilty before God. Instead, we're holy in God's sight because mm. Christ's righteousness has been applied to us. Right now, we have a new heart. Our, our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. That's the imagery that we get in Scripture. And so rather than have a heart that is geared towards sin and self, we're enabled to fight sin and, and to live for Christ and to love God as we ought. And right now we also get that new relationship. That relationship to God has been restored. That barrier of sin is gone. And so we have that that once severed relationship is restored, that uh, sin and that transgression, that's all been blotted out. So that's stuff that we have applied to us right now. Uh, beyond that, what were we saved to looking forward? Well, now that we've got this restored relationship to God, we're saved to eternal life with Jesus Christ, both now and forever. People need to, to recognize that we all have uh, an, inter- an eternal destiny, either with or apart from God. And when you have that barrier between you and God removed through faith in Christ, you're saved to being in, in God's presence in perfect joy for all eternity. It's what we, we think of and we talk about uh, heaven and then you know ultimately the new heavens and new earth. That's what we are saved to. Mm-hmm. So, Clay, are you saying that I, maybe I don't have to be afraid of death and I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and I can kind of be assured of that? Absolutely. That's what, that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to give us eternal life through faith and in him. And when we have that, we can have an assurance of our salvation to where, uh, you know, death is still an enemy, but it is a conquered enemy for the Christian, and mm-hmm. death is merely the entrance into eternal life with Christ. Mm-hmm. So am I going to be on some cloud playing a harp? Yeah, that's the other thing that people uh, sometimes get is this this really uh, you know Looney Tunes yeah. notion of what heaven and hell are like, and and certainly that's not the picture that we see in Scripture at all. 
Yeah, exactly. I know some of these questions, I know, I hope you know that I'm just playing with you and trying to sound like some of the questions <laughs> you and I have heard ourselves, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So do I understand that for all who believe, because you've talked about believing is critical to salvation. So this is how you receive it is by believing. So if I do that, am I somehow moved from death to life? And is that a status that's instantaneous or do I have to, does that come over time? How does that work? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And when we talk about, you know, believing in Christ, what does that even mean? Well, we're talking about uh, putting our faith in Christ. Spurgeon uh, categorized that into three distinct aspects or elements of faith, and that's knowledge. We have to know what what Scripture teaches about Christ and salvation. Belief, we have to believe it to be true, and and ultimately we have to put our trust in it. We have to rely on Him and His work on the cross as our only means of salvation. So that's what we're saying when we say you have to put your faith in Christ. We repent of our sin, we turn to Christ in faith, and once that happens, we are raised from death to life. That's the imagery that we see often in Scripture, and it's such an important concept for us to grasp. You know, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, like we talked about earlier. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Ephesians tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The point that people need to understand is Jesus Christ did not come to make sick people feel better. He came to make dead people alive. And that's why salvation has to be an act of God. We're, we're dead in sin. We cannot help ourselves. Jesus came to make dead people live. Now, Clay, you talk about needing to repent of my sin, but maybe I've committed over 20,000 sins. How am I going to do this? That's the wonderful, great news of the gospel is, is that Jesus died on the cross once and for all, for all sin, for, for all who come to faith in him for all time. So, uh, if you think of it in terms of a debt, we we owed an, an infinite debt to God that we could never repay. It, it was not possible for us. What it took was the sacrifice of an infinite person to pay that debt. Once you have turned to Christ, once you've repented of your sins, put your faith in him, you've been saved, you've been justified like we talked about a moment ago, you are forgiven God no longer sees your your debt of sin. He looks upon you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right. That's pretty good news. Excellent news. Absolutely. Yeah. A comment came in. Uh, there's a time to go on to perfection, which is probably glory. Hebrew uh, Hebrews warns us not to willingly sin. So we believers shouldn't lightly neglect the fact that sin, that sin has its sting. Oh, I would I would agree absolutely that, um, and you know we see this often in Scripture, particularly in the writings of Paul, where he is really going after Christians uh, who are either doing this or have been influenced by those who are saying, "Hey, we've got forgiveness. Sin is now no big deal, and and we need not guard against it. We need not fight it." And and that is that is lawlessness. That's licentiousness. That is not at all what we are called to do. While we are are forgiven our sin. Uh, if you have a true love for Christ, you recognize the the great cost that was to our Savior to have to have come and been crucified mm-hmm. and and died and buried to forgive us of that sin. So we will not take that lightly. In fact, when we talked about those things that we have, having that new heart 
uh, that new life in Christ, that is when we we go on and pursue that that sanctification. That is an ongoing process when we're conformed to the image of our Savior, and that does, unlike salvation, which is wholly a work of God, our sanctification, that is synergistic versus monergistic. It involves our consistent, faithful effort to press forward, to turn from sin, to to die daily towards those things, and take up our cross and follow after Jesus. Mm-hmm. Clay Craby is my guest. Now, Clay, so now I'm maybe at this point where I am believing and I am repenting. Will God give me all I need for life and and godliness as this new believer? He has promised to do so, and, and you can rest assured on it. And there's two ways, two really important ways that we do get all we need for life and for godliness. And one is Scripture, God's Word. It reveals to us His will. And all that we need to do and to live a life that's pleasing to him, we see in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scriptures breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture is given to us. That's his revealed will. That's not just words about God. That is the very words from God. And we also have the Holy Spirit. This is because of our justification. We now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and the Spirit teaches us. Jesus said before he left his earthly ministry and his disciples that the Holy Spirit will be sent in his name, and he's going to to teach us all things, bring to our remembrance all that Jesus has taught. He convicts us of sin. The Spirit intercedes for us, guides us in all truth, sanctifies us. Again, that's that's becoming increasingly more like Christ. So because of these wonderful things that that God has given us, we absolutely have everything we need in this life to uh, to have life and godliness. Mm-hmm. Clay, will I, if I submit to him and fully surrender and die to myself, will I have this abundant life that I hear about in Scripture? You will, and uh, I, I want to put an asterisk on that to prevent some misunderstanding, but Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, wouldn't you know it? Some people have taken Scripture and twisted it a time or two, mm-hmm. and so no, uh, this does not mean that you are guaranteed length of days and, and health and wealth and comfort and prosperity. These things are not promised in Scripture. If anything, Christ uh, promised quite the opposite. But what we do have is God's definition of an abundant life. In Jesus Christ, we have meaning, we have purpose, we have a deep and abiding joy that is far too lofty for the difficulties of this life to to reach. And so that doesn't mean that we're always happy, always feeling good, but we have a joy and a peace that can only come from a right relationship with God. And on top of that, if you think of the word abundant, you know, if you've got a, a coffee cup and you put an abundant amount of coffee, it doesn't mean this is full. Like the, the actual word there, it, it's overflowing. It's spilling over. And when we're talking about an abundant life, not only do we have a better life because this is a, a spiritual promise, uh, but it is overflowing. It goes uh, uh, on into eternity. So, uh, yes, we I have abundant life in Christ. I love it. Thank you, Clay. Have a great rest of the day. It's been great having you on. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. You bet. Clay Craby's been my guest. ReasonableTheology.org. After a break, Scott Hubbard's here. It's the afternoon.
Good Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back, and it was really nice to have Clay Cravey back on the program. He is at reasonabletheology.org. I'm just on his website right now, and he's got a whole host of things to look at and videos to watch and blogs to read and everything else. It's kind of a nice resource if you want to head over there to reasonabletheology.org. You can learn more about Clay. I've really enjoyed that series. I think it's, uh, I think it's fun for my guests, too, because they have to sharpen their skills. And I don't think that it's ever a bad idea to uh, have your skills sharpened when it comes to sharing your faith. And also, when people start throwing questions at you, and I think a lot of the times they're trying to trip you up or they're trying to get you in a gotcha moment or they're they're asking a real honest question to something that maybe seems really natural to us. We go, what does it mean to be saved? What are you saved to? And you think, well, you're saved to heaven. That's what you're saved to. It's good to think about that and to have uh, a good answer when you're confronted with um, questions like that. So if you are brand new to Faith Radio, thank you for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, We've got all kinds of great programming on the network throughout the day, and if you uh, like what you're listening to uh, and you want to learn more about us, we have a welcome pack available for you, and we want to officially welcome you with a little welcome pack gift. You can request yours at my faithradio.com. I don't know if anybody knows what the very first hymn was. The very first hymn ever. I, I think I think it was the very first hymn. Uh, we're going to find out about that uh, from Scott Hubbard. He's a writer at Desiring God, and he just walked into the studio after being stuck in traffic. <laughs> hey, Scott. Hey. How's it going, Bill? I'm doing well. Good. So, yeah. Uh, I'm excited to hear about this very first hymn. Well, first missionary hymn. Missionary hymn, yeah. Yeah. I was getting to that. Yeah. Don't think I don't do my prep, because I do. <laughs> I don't know what the first hymn is. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, not an expert in hymns, but... But it was 1862, something like that, wasn't it? Well, 1862 is where the story takes place that I talk about in this article, but the hymn the that some people call the first missionary hymn was written back in the 17-teens, probably. Okay. Yeah. See how important it is for you to be here? <laughs> <laughs> because if you they let me just talk about this first hymn, I'd yeah. confuse people. Yeah, that's true. And, people would I don't want to do that. Confused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first missionary hymn. That's All right. right. Let's hear more about it. Well, the hymn most people know the hymn today as the "Jesus Shall Reign." That's the title. It's originally titled Christ's Kingdom Among the Gentiles. They didn't title things as in in quite as catchy a way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few hundred years ago, but. Jesus Shall Reign is, uh, if you know the hymn, you probably know it by that name. It's been popularized by a few folks these days, some of these bands who modernize old hymns and put them to new music, maybe add a new chorus. It's one of my favorites, but it's written by Isaac Watts, who's one of the uh, earliest of the English writers who went beyond just singing of the Psalms and tried to take what the Psalms were doing and to... Uh, talk about Jesus in them. So not just use the Old Testament language of the Psalms in the corporate worship of the church, but kind of in a way Christianize them uh, and sing of Jesus explicitly and of the gospel explicitly. Okay, Scott, who were who were the first who, who was the first group of people to sing this 
missionary hymn? Well, no doubt it would would have been English <laughs> churches in Isaac Watts' day mm-hmm. back in the 17-teens. But one of the most remarkable stories that is attached to the history of this hymn is that a century and a half after Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, there was a group of about 5,000 people, men, women, and children on the Pacific island of Tonga. And this was an island that had known no Christian testimony, no Christian presence until the 19th century. And on this day, uh, George Tupu, the first Christian king of Tonga, gathered the citizens of this nation, this island, to commemorate a new code of laws and also to sing of the kingship of Christ. Wow. And they sang Jesus Shall Reign, this hymn by Isaac Watts. That's spectacular. Yeah. Would that have been their native tongue? Probably not. No, it wouldn't no, have been. Not Absolutely in Tonga. Not. <laughs> yeah. I don't really speak any Tonganese. Yeah, I don't either. Okay. Uh, I wish I did, but no, they were singing in English. So it was Methodist missionaries who came to them. Yeah, it is. And, you know, taught them this song. So uh, no doubt they had other music. No doubt they started to write Christian music of their own in their own tongue. But for this occasion, they sang Jesus shall reign. Let's do a couple of the verses here. Let's imagine uh, the chief, the chiefs and the warriors, uh, 5,000 singing this in English. Yeah. Jesus shall reign where ere the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to try singing it? No. Okay. Definitely not. <laughs> I'm not falling well, for that bit. Yeah, it is. It's it's moving, uh, especially if you do know the tune and can just imagine it. Imagine a group of 5,000, some of them, many of them, former cannibals, not having heard the gospel of Christ until these Methodist missionaries came, not having known the glory of Christ, and now singing that Jesus shall reign with happy hearts is pretty remarkable to consider. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what they would have been. Well, how would those those lyrics, what, they would have had to have them explained to them, right? They yeah. can learn learn the song in English, but what does it mean? Yeah. And the interpretation must have been powerful in their minds. Yeah. Yeah, it must have been to be able to pick this out as the song that they wanted to sing. Mm. And one of the just striking things to me is you think about um, all that God might be doing outside the headlines of the day is 1862, Pentecost 1862. What else was happening in 1862? Well, the Civil War was happening. <laughs> so think about being in America at that time and having the daily headlines, your newspaper just filled with news of war and what's going on between the North and the South. And all the while tucked away in a part of the world hidden from every newspaper headline, there's this momentous event happening where 5,000 people are gathered to sing of Jesus's reign who had never sung of his reign before. And I, so today, midterm elections yesterday, newspaper headlines filled with stuff. It just makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, what might be happening right now? That is on, a spectacular thought. On some unseen island that isn't touched by any newspaper headline, no uh, no one's talking about it online, and yet, what might God be moving that is the biggest story of today? Okay, that that's a profound thought. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to think about, because, you know, Jesus prepared us for this, didn't he? He talked about the kingdom as a mustard seed or leaven... Uh, hidden away in a lump of flour. And we don't 
often it's, it's tucked away. The progress of the kingdom sometimes is small in cases like this one in Tonga, not so small, but hidden anyway. And if we miss these kinds of things, we miss the real story that God is weaving in the world. Mm-hmm. So Scott Hubbard, talk more about uh, the, the chief in Tonga. What do you know about him and, and how did this affect this community? I don't know too much about him. The details of this event that I was able to find are somewhat sparse. Okay. I found the story actually in an old Methodist hymn, hymn book, not really hymn book, a, a book that gives some of the background and lyrics and stories behind some hymns. And the author included this one. So it was from some time ago. So I don't, I don't know too much about it, but uh, I do know that it was this big event that the king had summoned, gathered all these citizens for, not only to sing this song, but to commemorate a new code of laws. I don't know how much those laws were newly shaped by their Christian faith, but I do know that to this day, there is a heritage of Christianity in Tonga. And so this really was a, a marker in the sand uh, that changed the course of this country. And here's the uh, Psalm 72, verse 10, captured in the second verse of Watts's hymn. Behold, the islands with their kings and Europe her best tributes brings. From north to south, the princes meet to pay their homage at his feet. Yeah. So what Watts would do so often, Isaac Watts, so writing this in the 17 teens, is he would take... Like I said, a lot of churches at that time were just singing the Psalms verbatim. Mm -hmm. They just take the Psalms. And he would take Psalms like Psalm 72, and he would sometimes go really close to the actual wording, other times have a looser paraphrase. Jesus shall reign is more of a loose paraphrase, but it's it's basically Psalm 72. So Psalm 72.10 says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So Jesus shall reign and talking about various princes from the islands bringing Christ tribute is a way of talking about Psalm 72 fulfilled. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating story. I just love it. I love the comparison between uh, war and what was going on quietly with 5,000 um, people singing this song. Yeah, that's right. And you think too, just not only from the perspective of what was happening in America at that time, but also if you just go back and think about what was happening in, in Watts's own time when he wrote this hymn. From our standpoint, if you know much about missions and what God has done among the nations over the last 250 years or so, uh, it's, it's an amazing story. With William Carey in the early 1800s going to India and then later in the 19th century, Adoniram Judson going to Burma and, and Hudson Taylor going to China. And mm-hmm. this is another story of Methodist missionaries going to Tonga. But uh, Watts wrote his hymn before all that happened. And so he was looking out on a world, looking out on nations that were largely untouched by the reign of Jesus. It was uh, obviously the Christianity was... was um, a major religion in the 1700s, but it was, it was largely confined to the Western world and it had not yet spread to the South and to the East as it has today. And as it has throughout the last 250 years. So he's looking at a world largely untouched by the reign of Christ. And he's taking up Psalm 72, seeing how it's fulfilled in Christ and with a cry of faith saying, Jesus shall reign. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. And and Scott, it's hard to believe that some of these Tongans were cannibals. 
<laughs> That's yeah. hard for me to talk about, think about. Yeah, absolutely. But those uh, those very people were then praising Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. hopefully they were done being cannibals. Uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. The same the same people who, who once uh, ate human flesh, as amazing as that is to consider, were now singing with those same mouths the praise of Christ. Mm-hmm. What do you, Scott Hubbard, walk away with from this story? Well, I walk away with several things. I walk away, one, with the um, certainty of Jesus' reign. Mm. So it's interesting, helpful, sweet to consider that this hymn is inviting us not to pray that Jesus would reign, though that's fitting and right to do, but it's in fact a declaration that he will reign, which is also fitting and right to do. yeah. And it's one that Isaac Watts, that would have been harder for Isaac Watts to do in 17 teens, to look over the country, over the world rather, and to say, Jesus shall reign. It's not as hard for us to do, seeing how much God has done over the last couple of centuries, but it's still an act of faith because there are still so many people groups untouched by the gospel, so many lands that haven't yet uh, seen the reign of Christ in the way that the Tongans did and the way that we have. And it's, so it still takes faith to look out over a land, over a world like that, and to say, Jesus shall reign. But what God invites us to do in Scripture is not only to pray that that would be the case, but to declare that it will be so, that he's pledged that it will be so. Mm-hmm. so that's Good. probably the biggest thing. A great reminder that he shall reign. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Scott Hubbard is my guest. He's at DesiringGod.org. We'll take a break and be right back. love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. I get happy when Scott Hubbard walks in the studio. He's such a delight. He's at DesiringGod.org. Scott, I just got a nice comment from a listener. I grew up singing Jesus Shall Reign, and now my own kids are cross-cultural workers. Oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hymn like this that if you grew up on it, it could just give you the kind of categories that you would need to be able to see the world as um, the mission field of Christ and his, his gospel as unstoppable and mm-hmm. to give a kind of ambition that would make you a cross-cultural worker. So mm-hmm. it's awesome to hear. The article that we're talking about today, Scott Hubbard wrote, and it's at desiringgod.org. It was published in, in the summer in June. It's called Jesus Shall Reign, the Remarkable Story of the First Missionary Hymn. So 
I think we can talk a little bit more about this these this conquered people singing praises, and I know there's there's some more um, meat on that on this bone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things to think about, one of the just striking things, really, is. You think what happens when the gospel, when the reign of Christ comes to a, a people, comes to a land? Well, to speak of the reign of Christ is to speak of a, of a king coming to conquer a place. And that is what happens when the gospel spreads, whether it spreads over a single human heart, somebody coming to trust in Christ for the first time, or whether it spreads over an island and 5,000 mm. singing his reign at the same time. What's happening is, is a kind of conquering that Christ the King is is planting his foot on another human heart or on other human hearts. And it's not you know, <laughs> Jesus in the Gospels um, on more than one occasion in the different Gospels has, has need to talk to his disciples about how he himself is different from the kings of the earth, the kings of the Gentiles. And one of the remarkable ways that he's different is that those he conquers sing his reign gladly. That is not common for a conquered people to sing the reign of the one who came and conquered them. But it makes total sense in this case because Jesus, unlike the kings of the earth, conquers in order to bless, always. Mm. Conquers in order to bring blessing, which is there in Psalm 72, there in the hymn, and there in the story of the Tongans. So good. Let's talk about hymns a little bit because I I love hymns. It sounds like you love hymns. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, they're so rich and they're, they resonate and they stick with you for like forever. Yeah, yeah, they do. I think part of that comes from the fact that hymns are so often drawn really deeply from the well of scripture. So we talked about Psalm, Jesus shall reign coming. It's basically a paraphrase of Psalm 72. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's tapping into the rich vein of scriptural language and categories. I think that's part of the force of it. Maybe another part of the force is that they're deeply poetic, usually. You know, they they are, you can read them as poems that have music set to them. And so there's a depth to them in that way as well. Um, so yeah, hymns have a way of, I guess, uh, they might not, especially if they're, you know, you're singing them out of a hymnal, they might not strike you as musically as engaging as a lot of contemporary worship music. But once you get hold of them or once they get hold of you and get into your heart and mind, they often have a way of driving deeper than a lot of, a lot of the music that is common to hear today. Yeah, I would agree, uh, Scott. And I don't know, is, is a hymn part of your uh, 2 a.m. repertoire of things that you think about when maybe you pray or you think of a hymn or... Yeah, sometimes. In the, in the and, wee hours of the morning. Yeah. I've, had, I've had people say, yeah, I, I sometimes sing to myself at two in the morning. <laughs> I think that's a good thing to do. I was just reading one of the Psalms that, that talks about singing for joy on your bed. <laughs> so that's a, good, <laughs> that's a good thing to do. But yeah, hymns have a, I have a history with hymns. They've, they've been a real lifeline to me because the one thing that's true about hymns that's not present in this one in particular, in Jesus Shall Reign, but is that they have, they're not afraid to speak really honestly about darkness yeah, in the Christian true. life. That's so true. So the hymns of uh, a group called Red Mountain Church back in the day for me, going through a really dark period were, were, a, were a deep lifeline. They give you the, they're like the Psalms in a way. They give mm-hmm. you, they give you permission to, um, and, and a way of voicing things that you feel, but you're kind of afraid that you feel. And, and they, they can put it into words that helps you, 
it helps you say it and helps you speak these things to God about the kind of discouragement, even desolation, even near despair that you might be feeling. Hymns have a way of doing that. They're not afraid of going there. Yeah, and I love being in a in a church where there's maybe just an organ and we all have a hymn book out and we're singing a hymn together and yeah. you can hear the different voices and everyone's participating. Yeah, that's right. That's probably one of the... Um, Another of the differences is just in the congregational setting. Hymn singing is often associated or probably people have memories. You, you hear the voices that are around you. you. Do. And yeah. It's not, um, this isn't always the case, of course, but it's not drowned out by the instruments. Yeah, that that is um, something I have um, lamented um, because I, I will look around sometimes at church and see fewer people singing, although because the worship mm. band is doing a bang up job yeah sure but there are fewer people making audible sounds and noises singing yeah yeah that is really interesting the main uh i heard somebody say at one point that the main instrument in the corporate worship is meant to be this, the voices of the people mm-hmm. and that's true there's a different dynamic that happens when you can hear a rush of people dozens of people behind you and in front of you yeah. singing do you have a favorite hymn or is this your favorite hymn this is up there for sure um but i also uh, let me see here. The like I mentioned, the hymns of Red Mountain Church have have really meant a lot to me. They have um, they would would often put to music hymns from the Gadsby Hymnal, which goes back a ways. I would also say that um, Jesus, I my cross have taken is mm-hmm. is a favorite, and um, yeah, probably Jesus, I my cross have taken, and Jesus shall reign. How yeah. firm a foundation, maybe? That's yeah. another good one. Um, how great thou, thou art, always mm-hmm. a favorite. Um, great is thy faithfulness, yep. always a favorite. Um, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Yeah. Do you know that one? I do. Should we break into song right now or should we? <laughs> yeah, why don't you start us to... off? No, you, you start and I'll follow. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, one of the, also just another feature of hymns that is striking, um, someone who did a, is uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine who did a PhD dissertation in church music at some point, just talked about how if you trace the themes across church music, corporate worship, um, decade to decade, over the last, you know, hundred or so years, what you see, one of the things you see, so one of the differences between hymns and more contemporary music is um, uh, less singing about heaven and death less next less anticipation of the next world hmm. and more um perhaps sometimes of a bringing the, the the realities of heaven down into this life now which obviously the scriptures do part of the joy of heaven is ours now part of the life of heaven is ours now but one of the things the hymns do is also point us forward to uh beyond the jordan and to the next world to heaven mm-hmm. it is it is interesting when you think of hymns. If I say, crown him with many crowns, what's the next phrase that comes after that? Mm. Crown him with many crowns. The, um, lamb. the Lord lamb upon his throne. See, That's you're, you're there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I, all I had to do was embarrass myself by singing yeah. a little. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm, do you I'm, have a favorite hymn? What's yours? Well, I would say at the end of the day, um, how great thou art. Yeah. That just that just wipes me out every time. Yeah. 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 And I, you know I love Amazing Grace too, but everyone loves Amazing Grace, don't they? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I should have taken a survey as to what everyone's favorite hymn is. Mm-hmm. 
I'll tell you right now that every night hymn in our home is joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Do you know that one? Yes. Yeah, our two-year-old has latched onto it, and every night is a joyful, joyful dance party. <laughs> nice. Are you willing to sing a little bit? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but listen to this, to this stanza. This just gives you a hint of some of the depth and richness of a hymn like this. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessed, ever blessing, ever blessed, fountain of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live and love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And your little one singing that? Uh-huh. <laughs> how old is this little one? He'll turn three in a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. And he can belt that out. He belts it. That is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love hymns. Thank you for talking about the first missionary hymn ever. This is interesting. And I, I, I love this image of 5,000 people on some remote island singing the praises of God. And this is happening perhaps tonight. Yeah, perhaps and, right now. You know, That's right. With everything we have going on in the news right now, this event could be happening somewhere in the world. And we'll yeah. meet these believers someday. We'll yeah, be all together. Right. The, the, real, the real story of the world is how Jesus is building his church. Amen, Scott Hubbard. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you for that. And thanks, for, thanks for making it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Scott Hubbard has been my guest, and he is at DesiringGod.org, DesiringGod.org. You can go get the story online. It says, Jesus Shall Reign, the remarkable story of the first missionary hymn. We will take a short break when we come back. Hour two is just ahead. Daryl B. Harrison will be joining me for our Red Words of Jesus. If you have a Red Letter Edition Bible, they will be the Red Words in your Bible we got a passage out of John chapter 5 we're going to talk about. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.